traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. In the same way that superheroes rule the movie theatres these days, there was a time when the Western was king. So let's imagine if that forever in development Twilight Zone movie or TV show actually does get made and gets off the ground today and they did a Twilight Zone riff on the superhero movie. Then imagine that they cast Henry Cavill and Robert Downey Jr. as two of the main players and then filled the rest of the cast with other familiar faces from superhero movies like Samuel L. Jackson or Scarlett Johansson. Now I'm not sure that analogy completely works because in the days of the Twilight Zone, everybody had probably been in a Western in some capacity or other. And the stars in this episode that we're going to be discussing tonight, in some cases had their most famous Westerns ahead of them, rather than being at the top of that genre just yet. But by the end of this, I think you'll get my drift. The episode that we'll be discussing tonight boasts two giants of the Western, Lee Marvin and Lee Van Cleef, and several Western supporting regulars like Struther Martin, James Best, and William Chile. We have seen Westerns before in the Twilight Zone, but not quite like this because this Twilight Zone, as Rod Sailing is about to tell us, begins where other Westerns end, in the grave. Yes, sir. That's the end of that. Normally, the old man would be correct. This would be the end of the story. We've had the traditional shootout on the street and the bad man will soon be dead. But some men of legend and folktale have been known to continue having their way even after death. The outlaw and killer Pinto Sykes was such a person. And shortly we'll see how he introduces the town and a man named Connie Miller in particular to the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on 27th of October 1961. Written by Montgomery Pittman and directed by Montgomery Pittman. So this is the second outing for Montgomery Pittman as both writer and director after he opened the season with the episode 2. So we've spoken about him quite recently, but I'll come back to him later on. In our opening scene we see an outlaw named Pinto Sykes get gunned down by the townsfolk of a dusty western town. He's still alive though, so they carry him into the jailhouse and after they do, two of the men, Johnny and Jason, go to fetch the man's sister. And as they walk past, a door opens and out comes Rod Serling. Now you know that I love to have Rod Serling in the scene as much as possible. And we've got a good one here. You know, it's a nice opening narration too. And he comes out and he reacts to something that one of the characters has just said. So... You can't get more in the scene than that, and I really like that. 
But I also like the concept of this being the Western that begins where all others end. After the showdown, the shootout, the defeat of the villain. What happens next? Well, we're about to find out. I have to stop for a moment quite early on to mention something that immediately strikes me with the grave. Now, I'm not a huge fan of westerns in the sense that I watch a lot of them, but I do like a good western. My favourite film of all time is a western, and that is The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. I like the rawness of that film. Nothing is clean, everything is broken down and lived in, and I find this quite reminiscent of that in some ways. Even though The Grave was shot on stage 10 of MGM, so it is a set, I think these opening town scenes have a real grit and authenticity to them that remind me a little bit of that film. I like my westerns to have this raw aesthetic to show that this was a harsh way of life. And to add to that, Monty Pittman wanted the fans to be blowing from beginning to end so it takes it from being just a static set to something that's alive but also unforgiving. So by the time that the character of Connie Miller played by Lee Marvin rides into town, I think we're presented with one of the best looking Twilight Zone sets we've ever had. Why'd you fence off that piece of street down there? It's his blood. If you could see down under all that dust, you could see his blood down there. Whose blood? Pinto Sykes. They shot and killed him day before yesterday. So Connie Miller has been tasked with tracking down Pinto Sykes, but it's eight of the townspeople who actually take him down. Or to be more exact, one of them, because only one bullet actually seems to have hit. So they don't know who actually shot him. Sykes is carried into the jailhouse and remains alive for, I think they say later on, about half an hour. But our action shifts inside the saloon and carrying on that broken down aesthetic from outside. This isn't some shiny saloon, it's a dingy brick building with a bar and some tables and chairs in it. And as the wind howls outside, one of the men, Johnny Robb, starts to speak of Sykes in a tone that suggests some fear. But he also speaks in the present tense. So the legend of Pinto Sykes is starting to grow. But what does that mean for Connie? Reckon you're some disappointed, Connie, being as how you spent so much time trying to find him for yourself. That I am, I uh, Four months of the year wasted looking for him. I could have found him here. That ain't the way Pinto tells it. He claimed you didn't even try to catch up to him. Hello, Johnny Rob. Still big as blabbermouth as ever, I find. You do spout off a lot, Johnny Rob. But no need to get riled, Connie. Uh, us here ain't saying that you didn't actually try to catch him. But it is a fact that Pino claimed that on his deathbed. I really enjoy this element of the story. Now, on his deathbed, Pinto may have just been telling tales to damage the reputation of Connie. Or perhaps what he's saying is true, that Connie didn't really want to catch him. Either way, Connie's reputation 
is starting to take a hit. And anyone who's ever seen a Western movie knows that reputation counts for a lot. It's always who has the biggest price on their head, who has the fastest draw, who's killed the most men or pulled off the biggest heist. You know, reputation is everything in these films. So while Pinto Sykes throughout the episode is becoming an almost legendary figure of fear, Connie's stature is starting to diminish. We have a few people in this bar, so I won't go into too much detail about them all, but let's just touch on some of our main players. The young man with the guitar, Johnny Robb, is played by James Best, and this is his first of three Twilight Zones. He's going to return in The Last Rites of Jeff Myrtlebank, where he plays the title role, and also in Jess Bell. By this point, he's no stranger to the Western on TV with parts in Stagecoach West, Have Gun Will Travel, and Wagon Train, among others. But to me, growing up in the 80s, he was always Sheriff Roscoe Coltrane in the Dukes of Hazard, And he lived a long life, and we only lost him a couple of years ago at the age of 88 in 2015. Mothershed, the gentleman who broaches the subject of Connie's lack of results, is played by Struther Martin. Again, he was no stranger to the Western with parts in shows like Black Saddle and The Texan. But his most famous Western days are probably ahead of him. He played Percy Garris in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and several roles in Bonanza and Gunsmoke. Sadly, he died too young at the age of 61. And behind the bar is Stafford Rep. He was a Western regular too, having had roles in shows like Rawhide. This is his second Twilight Zone. He was in Nick of Time as the mechanic, and in the future, he'll be in Caesar and Me. But of course, to Bat fans, he'll always be known as Chief O'Hara in Batman 66. Now sadly, he too died too early of a heart attack at the age of 56. Now there is one other notable person in the bar and I will come back to him, but these three are pretty great casting for something like this. I can't really say much more than there's a reason that they were Western regulars because they did have that look about them. Going back to the good, the bad and the ugly, Sergio Leone would cast people who had interesting faces. And I suppose James Best at this point was a bit more of a conventionally Hollywood handsome, but the cast as a whole do have these kind of interesting looks about them. What'd he say about me? He got real riled when he mentioned you. He said the slower he ran away, the slower you chased him. He said he waited for you in uh, Albuquerque. Even sent word where he was, but you never showed up. He said you ought to be able to catch him now. But that if you ever come anyways close to his grave, he'll reach up and grab you. The more this conversation goes on, the more that Connie's reputation starts to take a hit. I feel that this is really quite well set up what we have here. On the one hand, it could be Pinto just trying to ruin Connie's reputation from his deathbed, or it could be Pinto setting his trap, getting Connie so worked up that when the challenge comes later on, he can't help but accept it. So where did this story come from? 
Now, without wishing to get ahead of ourselves, it does have a very classic revenge ghost story feel about it. There are examples of ghost stories with exactly the same premise. There is one called The Path Through the Cemetery, and, and Wikipedia describes it like this. It was published by Leonard Q. Ross and written in 1941, and it was set in Imperial Russia, and it describes a very timid man named Ivan who responds to a challenge that is similar to the one in the grave from a Cossack officer in the Tsar's army. And his challenge is to take a sword up to the cemetery for the same purpose, and he meets a similar fate. Then there is another story called The Dare, and it says about that Maria Leach authored a compilation of ghost stories called The Thing at the Foot of the Bed and Other Scary Tales. In 1959, that included a story called The Dare, in which a group of kids sitting in front of a fire telling ghost stories dare one of the group to go to the grave of a man who was just buried earlier that day. The boy takes the dare, states he will stick a knife in the grave to prove he was there, then proceeds to meet the same fate that night. But unlocking the door to a television classic documents it slightly differently. It says Montgomery Pittman got the inspiration for this story sitting on his father's knee. I was just a lad growing up on my pappy's ranch in Oklahoma when I first heard the story of a desperado who swore he would reach out from the grave and get the man who had been tracking him down. It seemed that whenever the wind began to howl my pappy and his friends would sit around the pot-bellied stove and he would tell the tale. This didn't happen just once, but about any time the wind was blowing up a storm. Now the actor who played Johnny Robb was called James Best and he tells a bit differently. He said, I was the one responsible for that episode. I told Monty Pittman that I was born in Kentucky but raised in Indiana. One of the things I remember most about my childhood was the ghost stories I used to hear. I collected ghost stories. I told Monty a couple of stories and suggested he use one for a television series. He told me, if I write the script and direct it, I'll have you in the cast. I told him, you do that. I can't recall how much time passed, but one day I got the word that I'm going to be on a twilight zone. Monty was such a pal, he remembered our agreement and kept his word. Also documented in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic is a letter that Sailing received the day after the telecast. And it said, it is an almost exact replica of a short story written by a Russian author. There's nothing wrong with this if it's adapted in an intelligent way. Your program was definitely put into a new format that was very good. The major objection I have to your show is that you gave no credit whatsoever to the original author. I believe that it was Chekhov. Your credits at the end gave the impression that Mr. Pittman wrote the show without the help from anyone. This is plagiarism. I'm sure that a person of your obvious education must have at some time or another come across this story. Well, look what the wind blew in. Hello, Alan. And how are you? Fine, just fine. How's yourself? Just tolerable. You know, my brother and I were just talking about you, just the day before yesterday. He's real sorry. He's been missing you. We told him, Alan. Even about how Pinto's gonna reach up and grab him? We told him that, too. 
You've been chasing him for so long, Connie. You ought to feel lucky tonight. You know right where he is. All you've got to do is walk up there. Now the legend of Pinto continues to grow with the arrival of his sister Ione played by Ellen Willard. Now she was an actor who had a relatively short career, only 20 credits in six years between 1960 and 1966. She appeared in a show called 12 O'Clock High four times and apparently according to IMDb, another person who was in that show was the Twilight Zone's first star, Earl Holloman. And he said of her that she left acting because she found it too emotionally taxing. In this she has a real playful and slightly ethereal quality about her that I really enjoy. And also the way that with a smile, she's reinforcing this promise that Pinto is gonna reach up and grab him. And she's such a natural beauty about her, tinged with madness. It is a shame that she had to leave Acton, but I hope that it led to something that suited him more. But what I was gonna say before you hit me and hurt me was, well now, I'll bet, I'm not accusing you, understand, but I'll bet that you won't call on Pinto tonight. Why don't you shut up before you really get hurt? It's almost midnight. Now I'll bet you, you won't walk out of here at midnight sharp and visit Pinto's grave. Now I got a $20 gold piece. Now I'll bet you, I'll bet you this $20 gold piece that took me 20 weeks to save, that you won't do what I just said. Here's our setup for the final run. Johnny Robb makes the bet but he doesn't make it alone. There's one man in the bar that we haven't heard from yet, and his name is Steinhardt. Connie, you haven't got another 20 you want to put up on that, have you? Are you saying that you want to bet against me too, Steinhardt? Betting's my business, Connie. You don't think I got the nerve, Steinhardt? I didn't say that. I just said I'd bet $20 you don't go. There. Keep an eye on the bets, Ira. Sure, Connie. Steinhardt, of course, is played by Lee Van Cleef, and he doesn't have a huge amount to do in this episode. By the time he says his first words, we're already 14 minutes in, and part of me does wish he had been part of it throughout, instead of just being in the background. You know, a question I have is, does it need this many guys in the bar? You could have had a bartender and one guy or two guys, but there's three, so Lee Van Cleef doesn't really get much to do. But he does have a presence, and when Lee Marvin sits down on that table, we really do have two giants sitting there in my eyes. It's like Al Pacino and Robert De Niro sitting down at the table in the movie Heat, but like I said, I just wish they'd had a chance to get into a real dialogue together, to see these guys bouncing off each other. Now Lee Van Cleef was a Western star through and through. By this point in his career, he'd probably done more than all the rest of the cast. He'd served in the Navy in World War II and then returned to an office job when he came back. But this isn't a man you put behind a desk. He did amateur dramatics in his spare time and 
was spotted by producer and director Stanley Kramer, who cast him as a henchman called Jack Colby in the film High Noon. He didn't even have any lines in that film, but the one thing that Van Cleef has in spades is a very distinctive hawk-like look. He's got a great presence, and when he's on screen, he's the one you watch. So High Noon got things moving for Lee Van Cleef, and from then on, Westerns figured large in his working life with shows like The Lone Ranger, The Adventures of Kit Carson, but by the mid-60s, he became disillusioned with acting. Although he was working, he still hadn't made it into those big starring roles. Until, that is, four years after The Twilight Zone. He was then in the second in Sergio Leone's Man With No Name trilogy for a few dollars more. And then in the third, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. And we get to see two different sides of Lee Van Cleef in those movies. In For A Few Dollars More, he plays the good and decent Colonel Mortimer. And in that movie, he would have been about 40 years old, but he ages up quite well in the part. And then he sheds the years again for his landmark role in The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. I guess because of the way he looked, villains were his bread and butter. And he said, bad guys have always been my bag. I look mean without even trying. Audiences just naturally hate me on screen. I could play a role in a tuxedo and people would think I was rotten. You can do much more with a villain part. Movies are full of leading men, most of whom aren't working. It's much harder to find a good villain. Although I wish he was in it more, a little Lee Van Cleef goes a long way and I'm glad he's here. The word of his character, Steinhardt, obviously carries some weight in town because when he makes the wager, it's that which makes Connie storm out and make good on his bet. By now his reputation is in tatters and he has to prove everyone wrong. Before you go, we've got to work out a little detail. Since this is a job you're gonna to have to do by yourself, how are we gonna be sure that you've done it? What do you mean? Well, what's to keep you from going, let's say, to the edge of the graveyard, then coming back and telling us you've gone all the way? You saying you don't trust me, Steinhardt? Business is business, Connie. And with me, this is business. And in that case, I guess you're gonna have to go along and keep me company. So you can protect your own interests. I have another way. Give me your bowie knife, Ira. What's that for? When you arrive at your destination, simply stick it into the earth of the grave. Then at daylight tomorrow, we'll be able to see the proof of your visit. If we see it within five feet of the fresh earth, we'll concede the wager. Connie leaves and heads up to the graveyard. So while he makes that journey, why don't we talk about our leading man, Lee Marvin? Now again, he fought in World War II and later said that he learned how to act by trying not to look afraid on the battlefield. He got shot in the behind in the Battle of Saipan in 1944 and was medically discharged. While he was working as a plumber in a community theatre in New York, he was asked to take over a part when another actor fell ill and then he got bitten by the acting bug. At this point in his career, he had appeared in westerns, but he wasn't really synonymous with them and going forward, he would have 
higher profile parts in westerns. But I guess if we had to pigeonhole him at this point, he came more from the crime arena playing hard-boiled detectives. Prior to The Twilight Zone, he played Detective Frank Bellinger in M-Squad for three seasons, a very tough, uncompromising cop. And he had such a presence that if he was a villain, you wouldn't want to go against him. But if he was a hero, you might not necessarily want to hang out with him, but you'd definitely want him by your side. Now, there's a lot written about Lee Marvin. We could film multiple shows with it. But one of the things that is well known about him also impacted on the Twilight Zone. Lee Marvin was a heavy drinker, but he was one of a breed who, though they would be Hellraiser's offset, they would be professionals on set. Now, I very much enjoy a book by Robert Sellers called Hellraisers, and it's about the adventures of a group of very talented British Hellraising actors, Richard Burton, Richard Harris, Peter O'Toole and Oliver Reed, all men who live to excess but have gifted wonderful performances to the cinema screen. And there are a couple of times in the book when our British Hellraisers cross paths with an American Hellraiser and Lee Marvin is one such man. So I'll just read you a couple of short passages. John Borman won't forget his experience of working with Lee Marvin on Point Blank shot in LA. He and some friends went to dinner with Marvin at the seafront restaurant. When it was time to leave, Borman could see that Marvin was in no fit state to drive home and told him so. Marvin told him where to go and Mr. Punch at the director's head. Borman grabbed the keys to Marvin's own Chrysler station wagon and got in. Like a wild animal, Marvin prowled around the vehicle, bashing it occasionally, until finally climbing onto the bonnet and up onto the roof rack. Everyone pleaded for him to come down, but he refused. Carefully, Borman drove along the harbour front, hoping some of the sea air might sober Marvin up. It didn't. He just snarled and refused to budge. The streets looked pretty deserted, so Borman decided to take a chance and drive down the Pacific Coast Highway towards Malibu. Just minutes later, he saw flashing lights in his rearview mirror. He pulled over. The patrolman walked purposefully to the car, looked up, looked at Borman, and said, Do you know you have Lee Marvin on your roof? And there's another passage where Lee Marvin crosses paths with Oliver Reed, a legendary Hellraiser, and often in the book when an American Hellraiser meets with a British one, it's sort of a bit of a challenge. This one actually takes place during a western. It says, When Oliver Reed agreed to appear in the western The Great Scout and Cat House Thursday in 1976, he faced the challenge of sharing the screen with a man whose hell-raising and boozing matched his own, Lee Marvin. By the mid-70s, however, Marvin was an ailing alcoholic who was at that stage in his illness, according to one of the executives, when just unscrewing the top of a whiskey bottle and sticking his nose in made him fall over. When Reed arrived in Mexico, the director said, You know Lee enjoys a drink. Please don't encourage him. Reed was happy to comply, only to hear later from Marvin that the director had said the exact same thing to him. The stars were also warned about the town they were shooting in. Durango had a reputation for violence. That first evening, the cast and crew met up in a local cantina. 
The instant that the director and producer left for their hotel, Marvin looked across at Reed, a twinkle in his eye. Bourbon, large, on the rocks, he barked at a waiter. When the man returned with a treble, Marvin looked at it incredulously. I said large. Not to be outdone, Reed snapped his fingers. Bourbon, large, too. The challenge was on. After a few rounds it looked like Marvin was wavering as he staggered to his feet and joined in with the Mexican cabaret, telling them how to play their instruments before crashing to the floor. Reed tried reviving him by stuffing ice cubes down the back of his shirt, worried the director might return and see they'd reneged on their promise not to booze. Shaking his comatose star, Reed spied an evil-looking Mexican take out his revolver and fire three times into the ceiling. Reed ignored it and carried on trying to resuscitate the now snoring Marvin. Another non-too-civilized looking Mexican got up and approached them. Hey gringo, he said. Reed pretended not to hear and dug Marvin violently in the ribs. For Christ's sake, Lee, wake up before we all get a bullet in our asses. The Mexican tried again. Hey gringo, and followed it up by firing into the ceiling. One of the other actors, Strother Martin, was getting anxious too. We've got to get Lee out of here. And together they somehow managed to carry the hulking Marvin out of the club, much to the amusement of the locals. The next morning, Marvin appeared at breakfast, looking as if nothing had happened. Know any good bar, Strother? he asked. Reed hoped the answer would be no, as he had a hell of a hangover. But Strother Martin did indeed, and they all got drunk all over again. Not surprisingly, Reed and Marvin became great friends, and the American star presented his British colleague with what he called his drinking cloak in recognition of the night he was out drunk. So it makes for a great tale, but obviously there is a very serious side to all this, and it did end up affecting the Twilight Zone, temporarily at least. In the Twilight Zone companion, George Clements remembers, we had a guy who was a little too heavy on the bottle. We weren't going to use him between four and the night, so we spent the time over at the bar very close to NGM. When we started that night, he was so rough on his horse. I knew it. He backed the horse right up to a picket fence. Then both of them went through, and I thought he was going to kill himself. He got out and wanted to work. So we had to call the night's work off, and I told Buck, I says, fire the son of a bitch, just recast. But they wouldn't go for it, and we went on. Eventually, it ended up as a very fine picture. This is him, Lee Marvin. And Buck Houghton continued with it. He said, the next day, he apologised to the crew, because he said, everybody was ready to work, and I wasn't, and I'm terribly sorry, and you just watch me go today. And by God, he put in a day's work that would knock your hat off. So is he any good in this? Well, Lee Marvin is Lee Marvin, and I think he's great in this. He has this really tough guy persona, but he does some very subtle things too, and you can really see his frustration as his reputation just gets chipped away. So I think he's a good choice, you know, the, the tough guy who gets taken down a, a peg or two, whether that's fair or not. When Connie makes for the graveyard, I mentioned earlier on how I like the look of the town, the buildings and the wind blowing constantly throughout. 
and they keep that up here as Connie goes up to the graveyard but the setting does become a bit more artificial looking and it's quite obvious that we are on a set now. Pittman did want these fans to be on all the time and in these later scenes they actually drowned out the voices of the actors so they had to re-record their dialogue. I don't actually mind the slightly artificial look of it though because it takes on the feeling of a kind of gothic horror combined with a western which is very fitting because as we spoke about earlier there are at least two other versions of this story and it's very traditional in its way. You could change up a few things and have it set in Old England, there was that version in Russia and it could probably be transplanted anywhere. It's it's kind of like a classic Hammer movie though at this point. And this gothic horror atmosphere is particularly evident when we see Connie approach the graveyard and he's clearly scared but pushing on and then this hooded figure walks towards him. You go on up there and see Pitto. I just came from there. He's waiting for you. <laughs> and see Pinto he does, plunging the knife into the earth, but then as he turns to leave, something pulls him to the floor. So you think Connie's death was an accident? That he stuck the knife in his own coattail? Yes, ma'am. How did his coattail get over the grave? For some reason or other, he had it unbuttoned. The wind must have done the rest. What direction was the wind from last night? The south, why? The south. Same as now. Look at my clothes. I'm standing in the same spot Connie was. Look at my cloak. Is the wind blowing it across the grave? <laughs> so how about this twist? You know, I'm fine with there being a certain amount of ambiguity as to whether Connie Miller was pulled down by Pinto or not. And then of course there should be some detail that makes us think, well actually, it looks like maybe something supernatural did happen here. I'm just not sure that wind direction blowing his coat over the grave before he stabbed it into the earth is the thing. It's maybe a little random. Pinto has only been buried that day. It's soft earth and you could probably pull a knife out of it like a hot knife through butter. I would imagine even harder earth. I don't think if you stabbed a knife into it that way, it would have enough purchase to pull a fully grown man down like that. And I think perhaps that's what they should have gone with. Connie goes to the grave, he kneels beside it and stabs his knife into it. Unbeknownst to him, he stabs his coat into the earth, which was trailing on the ground. He goes to stand up, but then falls down like was shown in the show. The next day they come and find him and they talk about their little theories. Oh, he must have got his coat caught with the knife and got frightened to death when he thought it was Pinto reaching up to get him and then one of the characters kneels down and says hold on a minute this is soft earth it would come out of the ground easily 
and then shows us by easily pulling the knife out of the earth. You know, it is a visual medium after all, and by pulling the knife from the ground so easily, that leaves us with that little thought, you know, did Pinto reach up and grab his coat as he left, or hold the knife into the ground, or was it just some crazy chance that the knife held in the dirt? But then again, is the point of it that actually Connie didn't stab his coat into the earth at all and he was pulled down by Pinto who himself stabbed the coat into the ground after he'd finished whatever business he was doing. Because when we look at Connie driving the knife down into the earth, he's looking right at the ground. He would have seen that his coat had gotten caught. So I think the ending could have been finessed in some way and yes be ambiguous but suggestive of Pinto making good on his promise but maybe not relying on something as random as wind direction maybe a bit more finesse in there would have been the thing now you could conceivably say that this is one of those twilight zones with no supernatural or science fiction elements to it but i'm not sure it actually fits because the whole point is there might be something supernatural going on but i do think it's unusual in terms of the twilight zone it's possible supernatural happenings is more to do with the possibility of a ghost or reincarnated corpse returning from the grave which is perhaps more fitting to the night gallery than the twilight zone so is it really twilight zone well as i've said before there's only one man who decides what's twilight zone and that's rod sailing so if it's in it is if it is a little unusual then that's fine with me because this one has such a great atmosphere to it our writer and director montgomery pittman has one more twilight zone writing gig to come the last rite of jeff Myrtlebank, and it's been too long since i've seen that one to truly recall it but from the first episode he wrote two and now this one I'm really starting to feel that as well as Pittman's death being tragic because he died so young, it's a real loss to the Twilight Zone. In the two episodes that we've seen so far that he's written, he's really impressed me and it's such a shame that we didn't seem to get more because his voice seems to fit with the Twilight Zone really quite well. Mark Zickery calls this episode spooky and genuine and this time I have to agree with them. This is a real western cast in a great setting. Gothic horror through a western lens. All of the cast members were to varying degrees western stars and some of them did share other western credits together. You could have put all these actors in a straight up western movie and it would have been great, they would have fit perfectly. So Pittman took this idea of a western that begins where all the others end and really took it seriously i think authentic is the key because it feels authentic probably more so than the other westerns we've seen so far and as i said earlier a major theme in cowboy films is that of reputation and you could imagine that prior to this connie probably had the reputation of being a great bounty hunter and pinto a fearsome reputation as a lawbreaker so this great western trope is part of the fabric of the story in a different way here were pinto's words just the words of a man wanting to damage the standing of connie who had chased him across the country or were they a cleverly constructed trap to lure connie to 
to where he wanted them to be. The beauty of it is, we'll never know. But what I do know is that this is an episode that maybe veers a little away from the usual, but is still a very welcome addition to the Twilight Zone. Final comment. You take this with a grain of salt or a shovel full of earth as shadow or substance. We leave it up to you. And for any further research, check under G for Ghosts in the Twilight Zone. So there we go, the grave. Enjoyable one, that. Now, there's no listener feedback this week, but I do want to make mention of something that happened a couple of weekends ago. I recently, on one of the shows, lamented the fact that there didn't seem to be a Twilight Zone convention scene, and it looks like that might be about to change. There was an event a couple of weeks ago in Binghamton, New York, and I'm saying it correctly this time, I've been corrected by a few people, it's not Binghampton, it's Binghamton. And it was called The Twilight Zone Comes Home, and there were things like screenings of Twilight Zone episodes, uh, meet and greets with Anne Sailing and Jodie Sailing, and stage shows and Q&As, all that good stuff. But most of all, a lot of Twilight Zone fans coming together and just kind of reveling in their, their love of the Twilight Zone. What I wouldn't have given to be there, you know, I really wish I could have been, but uh, I, I guess I learned of it too late and whether I could have got the money together to go to New York at such short notice, I really don't know. But um, what was nice is around that time, I kind of discovered the Twilight Zone Facebook group. It's, I believe, created by a lady called Shelley McKay. It's a really nice group, really nice group of members, and they number in the thousands now. And um, it was great to be able to go on there. I've only just discovered it and look at people's pictures from the event, their stories about the event, that kind of thing, and, and get a sense of, of what I was missing, really. And a listener to the show, Roger Scarlett, said a very nice thing, that him and his son were listening to the Twilight Zone podcast as they drove to Binghamton for this event. So even though I couldn't be there, it was so nice that Roger was listening uh, to the show on the way. And I hope maybe at least there was another couple of listeners to the Twilight Zone podcast there. And if you did go and you enjoyed yourself and you want to share anything on the show, then email me at tom at the com. You know, share some of your stories about what happened there. Uh, either email me or send me an mp3 clip and, and let us know how it went because there is talk that this might now become a bit of a, a regular thing at the very least perhaps for the 60th anniversary of the twilight zone in a, in a couple of years time so i'm going to do my best to be at that if that's the case if it happens i think it's in 2019 if it happens, I'm going to do everything in my power to be there because it looked fantastic. And just to be able to physically be in the presence of so many Twilight Zone fans, you know, it, it's great being online and speaking to people through this show and getting feedback and emails. But to actually be able to be there with other fans would be absolutely amazing. So I'm going to do my best to go there. And, uh, you know, fingers crossed if I can get the funds together to make that trip in a couple of years time then I will definitely do that and if you're listening then maybe I'll meet you there too so if you want to email me some feedback or thoughts on the Twilight Zone then email me at tom at the twilightzonepodcast.com 
I also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash Twilight Zone Podcast. If you want to support the show on Patreon, it's patreon.com slash Twilight Zone Podcast, and you'll get that extra show, Twilight Zone Aftermath, where I do short audio reviews of the 80s and 2000s Twilight Zone. And if anyone has the chance to leave a review on iTunes, I would really appreciate it. And I want to say thank you to Greater in US iTunes, who left a very kind review recently. The next show coming up, it's a bit of a big one, and there's quite a few things to go into here. So I'll let Rod Sailing let you know what that is in a moment. I do also have an interview in the works, which might actually come out before that one, but the next episode is a big one. You know what it is, and Rod will tell you what it is shortly, but it is based on a short story, and it's been a while since we've had a good short story on the show, so I'm looking forward to bringing that one to you next time. So here's Rod Serling to tell us what that is. And I'll speak to you soon. And now, Mr. Serling. Next week, we borrow from the exceptional talent of author Jerome Bixby. It's an adaptation of what has been called one of the most terrifying modern fantasies ever written. What you'll see is, in a sense, a portrait of a monster as a young boy. Next week's very special excursion into the Twilight Zone is called It's a Good Life. I hope we see you then. You know, it's only a short hop from the Twilight Zone to Dodge City and Gunsmoke. Saturday nights over most of these stations.